Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today I am joined by Pippa Richardson. Pippa is an embodiment teacher and writer, founder of The Girlness Project and yoga and body awareness therapist at Ori. In 2017, Pippa founded The Girlness Project, an initiative which aims to support the emotional and physical health of young girls, as well as the importance of self-care. Pippa joins us today to talk about somatic therapy, connection, sex, intimacy and relationships in eating disorders. Hello Pippa. Hi Hannah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I feel like we've got so much to talk about today. <laughs> I Honestly, I can't wait to get started. Oh, brilliant. I feel the same. Big topics. <laughs> yes. And ones I think aren't often spoken about. Really important to talk about though. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the first question, uh, sort of the first topic I wanted to cover with you was the job that you do. So the somatic therapy that you do. So I kind of, because I didn't really know what that was before. Um, <laughs> so I wondered if you could explain to us and how that works in relation to helping people in eating disorder recovery. Absolutely. Uh, you're not the only person <laughs> that uh, perhaps hasn't come across that form of uh, working, way of working or modality of working. Although I do think we're seeing and hearing more and more um, mm. in all different settings. And I guess that the way I work does differ somewhat in the different settings that I work in, or it takes on different forms. But when we're thinking about somatic work, we are acknowledging, firstly, that there's a connection between mind and body. Mm-hmm. And a way that I often think about describing it is that we are working with the channel of the body. And what I mean by that is that we have our kind of cognitive channel, <laughs> our thinking mind, and that gets a lot of priority. <laughs> that gets a lot of uh, attention. Uh, But we also have this incredible channel of the body, which is continuously giving us information. And somatic awareness or somatic therapy is really about developing embodied awareness. It's about developing our our ability to gather our attention within and notice what's present. That might be uh, physical tension, It might be observing our energy levels. It might be acknowledging how feelings or emotions are experienced within the body, right? So 
when we think about somatic therapy, we're thinking about developing our language and understanding of the body channel and then how that relates to our psychological material. So if I think about a kind of an example that we can all relate to is that I, I don't know, my boyfriend has stacked the dishwasher incorrectly (laughs) something (laughs) kind of mundane that we can kind of get hold of and I suddenly start to feel my shoulders creep up as an example or I start to feel kind of on edge or anxious we can't separate out mind and body somatic therapy is a way of really acknowledging the body process um, and how the body processes our external experience Um, how that looks in terms of Um, the clinical work that I do with eating disorders Mm. is that it takes on various different forms some of that is movement right we might explore mindful movement we might explore breath work Mm. we might explore group process where we're kind of talking about and reflecting on our, our embodied experience and our and our embodied history so it can take on different forms but it's really about allowing the body to speak, actually. And I can imagine that that is like ridiculously important in eating disorder recovery, because I think a lot of the time, you know, the eating disorder itself is sort of a way of navigating emotions and sort of avoiding them and putting it into kind of an eating disorder instead. And I think a lot of people with that don't, focus on within or don't allow themselves to feel how they're feeling and I think often there's a lot of discomfort being present in your body so sort of sitting with that and I guess acknowledging why you're feeling that way and allowing yourself to feel that way as well that I think that would be really important. Absolutely and I think Hannah you've just kind of named a few things there that are so important which is you know, an eating disorder is doing everything it can to support distancing from the body, mm-hmm. right? If we think about our kind of basic needs, obviously nourishment in the form of food and water is, is number one priority. So an eating disorder is, um, is creating distance it's kind of severing this connection between mind and body our ability to nourish and I think it can be kind of helpful to name the separation Mm -hmm. and also to acknowledge that the separation is there for good reason right an eating disorder is a a way of um, often coping it's a coping strategy for potentially an experience um, or lived trauma, a trauma response that meant that we had to create distance between kind of self and our experience. So I think, um, you know, what I often say when we're thinking about kind of beginning uh, body awareness work, what we're not trying to do is kind of force our way in, (laughs) right? Or, Or we're kind of, we're not Uh, demanding us to kind of sit within an embodied experience if it's intolerable where we might start is just noticing the gap Mm. right that it feels challenging um, that we can start to get curious about ah okay what 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 does this gap have to tell me Um, because originally it was there to serve great purpose 
Um, it might be that at the point of a recovery journey that we're just starting to question, okay, does this serve me now? Mm. Um, so yeah, I think you've named a kind of number of important things there. <laughs> yeah, and I really like what you said there about not just throwing yourself into it or kind of like demanding that we do it right now, because I think that is in itself that sums up sort of like quite an eating sort of mindset in that all or nothing, that black and white thinking of I either have to be in the eating disorder or I have to be completely challenged every second which whilst you know we want quick and speedy recovery and we want to be out of it I think also giving yourself time to understand why you're putting yourself in that vulnerable position and sitting with that because I think a lot of people you know I think there's a lot of sort of talk of doing like meditation and yoga during eating disorder recovery but I think often people are put off because they think oh but I'm just gonna have to sit with all of this that I'm giving my eating disorder and I'm dealing with it that way I'm gonna have to sit with that but by you saying you talk sort of take it slowly and allow yourself to unwrap it gradually I feel like that will have much better long-term effects Absolutely. And I think you're so right to name the myths. (laughs) And I actually, I love it when someone brings me, you know, their concerns, because we can really name it and hopefully uh, soothe some of perhaps the misconceptions that we have. Um, One of the things that I say is, you have a body, right? You don't need to um, do embodiment practices. You already have a body. Our job is just to get curious about what our relationship is with our body. And that is something that can be incredibly paced. It's something that we can explore through a number of different uh, practices and tools. And what's really important is that we're monitoring our tolerance to that. Um, I often say if someone says to me I've tried breath work and I just start feeling more anxious and I was told that this was supposed to help I say what's really important is that you acknowledge that your body said no Mm. right that's embodied awareness that you tried something and you had the experience where you were able to clock okay this doesn't feel good for me or okay this doesn't feel safe for me In that case, it's not something that we should demand ourselves to sit through, whether that's a breathwork practice or it's a yoga class. Actually, our job is to say, okay, I've witnessed a piece of information and how do I get behind that? Or how do I get curious about that? Um, You know, often mindful practices are not relaxing, (laughs) right? They're bringing us... um, can be uh, they can bring us to a place that's confronting Mm. so I think if we can kind of stay soft in terms of you know a a kind of approach um, and a curious approach then then it gives us more capacity to explore this in our own own time and own way yeah yeah and I really like that as well I think it's having acceptance of self in that you know this right now is not working for me even though I've been told that it should that I think is part of the recovery and that sometimes you're going to need one thing other times you're going to need something completely different but it's about being aware of that and listening to yourself like you've said um I think that is like one of the most important parts of recovery absolutely and there's the there's the practice right Mm -hmm. um and I think you're absolutely right Hannah that Um, at different points in recovery we will find different modalities and and different therapies or different teachers helpful Mm -hmm. 
and at other points they won't be. So I think it's really important that we're flexible, that we are trying to meet the moment, really. That's what a recovery journey is about. How do we meet the moment? How do we meet the individual where they are? Yeah, absolutely. And just talking about the body, um, I wanted to ask you about, I know that this is something you're very passionate about, the impact that your eating disorder has on the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, because I don't think a lot of people, again, this is something else a lot of people don't know about, talk about or anything, but it's fascinating. It's a big topic. I think it's important <laughs> to kind of say that from the offset. And I have, um, I guess, the kind of anecdotal information in terms of what I witness. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about, you know, a considerable amount of my work is working with in the kind of realm of eating disorders. Underneath that, I'm working with people, I'm working with bodies, right? And so I see patterns uh, just by the very fact that we're we're kind of united by our common humanity, right? Not just that they're specific to eating disorders, although of course we do witness patterns. Mm. But if we think about the nervous system, we have the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. And together they make up our autonomic nervous system. So there's two parts. People might be familiar um, with this, but I'll just kind of try and give a brief (laughs) overview. I have heard this being described in a number of different ways. Um, One I find helpful is thinking about sympathetic nervous system as our accelerator system Mm -hmm. and the parasympathetic nervous system as our brake system. So sympathetic nervous system, if we think about an accelerator, it's designed to um, spring us into action, right? If we were to experience some kind of threat, if we were to experience something where we needed to um, immediately become more alert, what happens kind of physiologically is that blood gets uh, kind of rushed to our muscles, our heart rate increases, our pupils dilate. It's the fight or flight response, right? The parasympathetic nervous system is the opposite. It's our brake system. It is designed to um, support our rest and digest systems to kick into gear. Mm -hmm. So it's about slowing down. It's about um, reducing the kind of sympathetic activity. So we are kind of moving through these systems or these kind of states all the time. If we just think about modern day living, (laughs) it probably wouldn't take us too long to think about how often we are in one or the other camp, right? I think kind of on the whole, most of us would recognize that we're probably firing in the sympathetic more often than parasympathetic. But So if we look at the work of Dan Siegel, who looked at the nervous system through the lens of what he called the window of tolerance, he described how a healthy regulated nervous system would move between these two states. So this kind of active arousal state and this settling state relatively smoothly, right? 
what happens if we have experienced um, trauma? So that could be early attachment trauma or it could be a traumatic experience or event is that we move outside of our window of tolerance Um, just so that I can name kind of early attachment trauma and what that means when we think about a mother and a baby what we would hope would be happening in terms of that early attachment bond is that the mother is attuned to the baby and she can meet the baby's needs so through feeding through settling through soothing through contact And that, in turn, uh, supports co-regulation, where the baby then learns eventually to self-regulate. If that doesn't happen, so if the mother is unable to meet those needs of the baby, then we have what's called uh, early attachment trauma, where this co-regulating and this self-regulating system is inhibited. So that would be an example of how we move outside of this window of tolerance in terms of the nervous system that can then send us into uh, kind of we've got two ends of the spectrum so one end is hyper arousal the clues in the name right it's that hyper vigilant state of awareness um, and the opposite of that is hypo arousal so that is the kind of shutdown response It's when we, um, almost if you imagine an animal, kind of play dead. Mm -hmm. So we could think about hyper-arousal as a more anxious state, hypo as a more depressive state. So when I think about my work and when I think about the people that I work with, I work with people on that whole spectrum, Mm -hmm. right, of people that occupy more of the hyper alert state or the hypo Mm -hmm. in other words what we could think about is that often we're working with strained nervous systems or dysregulated nervous systems the causes of that are what we explore obviously in the kind of therapeutic modalities right but this is where the kind of body-based work or body-based therapies can really support the journey because we can think about, okay, how do we start to soothe and settle this nervous system? How do we start to bring this uh, dysregulated nervous system back into a more regulated state? So I understand that's perhaps quite a lot of theory. I've tried to kind of summarize it as much as possible, but I think in terms of eating disorders, we can work on the full spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. People will respond differently depending on their experience Um, but I would say often we're working within kind of anxious or depressive states and we might also work with people that um, they they, their experience moves and shifts obviously throughout recovery as well so it's not a fixed thing either that feels important to say Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess does the sort of the um, embodiment that you work with people if that helps them sort of connect within alongside that does that help them to be able to connect with others because I feel like something that happens sort of in eating disorders is that people do become distant from others whether that's their family their friends their loved one their partner which I guess that's kind of what we want to come on to next but does that support that connection 
Yeah, it's such a great question, Hannah. And earlier on, you used the word connection, right? And I think that is key when we're thinking about the relational dynamic, right? What I would say is that any information that we learn about ourselves, so in other words, how we make contact with self can support us to make contact with other, right? Whoever that other is. So if we can develop connection with ourselves, we often have more capacity to develop connection with others. Sometimes I say that the work we're doing is, it's a bit like we are detectives. We're kind of going on a journey. (laughs) We are um, open to investigating. We're open to being curious. And then when we have pieces of information that either resonate with us or that help frame our experience, then we might have capacity to share that with somebody that we love and trust, which might help deepen our connection with them, Mm -hmm. right? So if we become aware that we are operating in a more hypervigilant state, then we might be able to notice that um, if I kind of circle back to that example of someone stacking the dishwasher incorrectly, if you know, if I have kind of quickly responded to that in a way that is perhaps inappropriate to the kind of uh, the environment in terms of someone stuck the dishwasher incorrectly, you know, (laughs) I should be able to, you know, let that go in terms of like my nervous system should be able to move into a more regulated state. If I'm finding that I'm not, right? If I'm finding that I'm aggressive or I'm finding that I go cold or I shut down or, I mean, it's a silly trivial example, right? But I'm trying to kind of frame how how our experience and our kind of nervous system can impact our relationships. It will make itself known. So if I can recognize that and perhaps share with my partner, actually I'm feeling really on edge. And when you did that, um, I realized that it, you know, reminded me of X, Y, Z, or I felt that you didn't listen to me when I asked you how to stack the dishwasher correctly. So I feel like you didn't hear me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So we can see how the more information we learn about ourselves, the more it can support us in relational dynamics. Yeah, I absolutely, I love like everything. I've got so many points that I want to pick up on that you just said. I think it was all so fantastic. So I'm going to try and remember them all. Um, But I think like the first thing I want to say is I think you're so right. And the more that we sort of understand about ourselves, I think it allows us sort of to know who we are and feel more comfortable in ourselves, know how we're going to react to things. And I think that does let us open up to other people because we sort of, become more comfortable we're more ourselves, and then we're able to connect with others more but also the other thing that I wanted to kind of say was I think with you know your example of the dishwasher I think actually is such a great example because I think often when we are in the depth of an eating disorder I think one it's always sort of small things that can make us sort of frustrated or angry Mm. and especially in terms of sometimes with food I think you know if somebody dishes up food for us and they maybe cut it in the wrong way or they serve it up on the wrong plate or something it's those small things that I think 
kind of the eating disorder uses to get in between ourself and our loved one um so I'm I'm actually really glad that you used an example that wasn't a big thing because I think the sort of dishwasher thing is a great example um and I think it must be very difficult when in a relationship whether that's um you know a parent and a child a friend or you know in a relationship with a partner it's always going to feel like there's somebody sat in the middle of that I think you've you've kind of summarized it so beautifully Hannah and you're absolutely right you know often it's our day-to-day interactions it's our day-to-day conversations that actually can shed incredible light right on on our experience and and where uh, we're feeling challenged or compromised in some way if we think about you know I like to kind of break the word intimacy down intimacy we can think of as into me I see Mm -hmm. right that's amazing (laughs) into me I see yeah so intimacy in order to form intimacy firstly we have to find that within we have to turn our gaze towards self before we can uh we could think about I think Brene Brown refers to uh like the bid for connection you know how we make a bid for connection so we can make a bid for connection when we have more capacity to develop intimacy within and I think definitely the kind of body-based practices or mindful practices actually in those day-to-day moments if we realize that we are becoming very dysregulated very quickly over things that could appear trivial then it's a really helpful piece of information for us to say, okay, my nervous system is um, actually responding kind of appropriately in terms of it thinks that there's something wrong, but perhaps not appropriately within the kind of context of the here and now. So we can just keep gathering information and feeding it back within spaces that are safe to do so and explore that. Yeah, absolutely. And it it sounds really like, you know, this is such a cliche, but I think it's so true in that in order to love someone else, you have to love yourself first. Mm -hmm. And I know so many people say that, like when they have a breakup or something, I've just got to focus on myself. But I think it's so true. Um, And I wanted to touch on because obviously you've started the conversation about intimacy. I think often when we think about intimacy, we think about sex. Um, But before we talk about sex and how that's affecting eating disorders, I wondered if you could maybe talk about what intimacy is. And, you know, I don't think it is just having sex with somebody. There's, There's a whole spectrum of other things that are included. Absolutely. And I think it's really up to us to define it actually it's interesting I did a poll on one of my Instagram stories recently asking that question like what does intimacy mean to you and it was so moving to read the responses they were so varied Um, some of the answers were things like vulnerability connection somebody listening to what I have to say Um, experiencing something new with someone Mm -hmm. Uh, somebody wrote the absolute truth (laughs) it was so I was so moved reading it and I guess it made me think about how do I define intimacy right I think that you're absolutely right you know often 
when we think about the word intimacy, we might associate that with sex. Actually, sex is, um, you know, one component or it's one way in which we can form intimacy with another. And when I think about intimacy, I'm thinking about um, authentic self, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think authenticity um, sits alongside intimacy, right? We can't form connection through uh, a kind of lens in which we are trying to kind of fit or be with a certain, appear a certain way, right? There's something about intimacy that really requires us to be authentic and, uh, and to be vulnerable. I think I, you know, there's kind of many different articles that say there's six forms of intimacy, there's 12 forms of intimacy, <laughs> you know, there's probably endless forms of intimacy, right? But I guess I would kind of encourage us to think about what does intimacy mean to me outside of sexual intimacy? Um, Can I think about ways in which I experience that in my life that have nothing to do with sexual intimacy? Um, It could be new experiences. It could be, um, yeah, sharing a hobby. It could be um, a vulnerable conversation or just an open and honest conversation. We can get really creative with how we find it. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like the word vulnerable there. I think if if I'm thinking about intimacy myself of how I would maybe necessarily describe it, I think it would be, you know, not just talking about like a sexual partner in this aspect, but anybody, whether it's a friend or whatever, just being their vulnerable self with me. I think you see like their honest, raw self. I think that to me is like being the most intimate. So like you said, that can be with a friend or anybody. But I also wanted to ask the question just regarding like the vulnerability aspect of things. And that I think often when somebody's in an eating disorder, sort of being your vulnerable self and I guess you know when you are engaging in sex with someone getting naked I think can feel really really difficult so I kind of wondered if you could maybe explain that from the perspective of somebody with an eating disorder how they feel vulnerable in their body if somebody's listening that they're maybe a partner of somebody that is going through an eating disorder just to discuss the sort of things that happen with like libido and body confidence and stuff like that that might have changed um if somebody's been in a long-term relationship with somebody or maybe even a short term but just seeing that dramatic shift of having that sort of intimate vulnerable self to then you know that insecurity yeah it's such a it's such a kind of rich topic Hannah and I think I think um the way in which someone who is experiencing an eating disorder Um, comes up against this will vary greatly Mm -hmm. right one might be um, an experience where they feel distant so distant from connection with their own body distant from a partner distant Mm -hmm. from having any kind of active sex drive the opposite could be that sex is used as a way to uh, seek connection Right. So it could be the opposite. It could be that actually kind of um, somebody finds themselves kind of using sex or, or, or trying to kind of find ways to be 
um, intimate with other people as a way in which to kind of ultimately find connection. Mm -hmm. So it can vary greatly. I would say that in terms of, so, so I guess what I'm saying is if somebody listening has an eating disorder is perhaps to kind of get curious about how your own experience is showing up right what what even kind of comes to mind when you hear the word sex Mm -hmm. like can you tune into your body and just kind of notice what happens right to kind of take great care with the kind of witnessing of your response to that or even this conversation so that might be there might be a piece of information in there Mm. I think um in terms of um either body confidence or um libido you know these are things that are cyclical these are things that move through continuous cycles so one thing I would say is that whatever your experience is right now this is not the end of the story right this is a moment it's perhaps a chapter within uh, the lifetime the story of your life and so if we can kind of recognize that this is the season, whatever that kind of season looks like for you, then perhaps it can kind of soften some of the edges around, uh, yeah, kind of great concern, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If we think about someone who perhaps is experiencing uh, kind of feeling lack of libido, a lack of desire, lack of wanting pleasure, perhaps low, Um, body image uh, and a sense of kind of distancing then I think we can um, you know we need to kind of get really curious about what are we distancing from right and also if we think about you know a body that is trying to survive a body that is perhaps malnourished and is Um, you know, trying to do its kind of basic functions, then recreating, procreating is not going to be number one on our priority list, right? Again, that's actually the intelligence of our body doing what it's supposed to do. So it's just that our body's kind of priorities, if you like, have shifted, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that it has disappeared forever. It's just saying, okay, right now, the signals or the information that you're I'm receiving are telling me that um yeah libido is not number one here right so I'm going to put that to the bottom of the to-do list (laughs) of my very busy activity (laughs) list and maybe come back to it if I get a different kind of signal right um I think that that can um you know it can be incredibly difficult for partners for you know somebody who is in a relationship with somebody that has an eating disorder and so then I think we have to get really creative about how to support ways in which that couple can still find connection Mm -hmm. can still experience pleasure together uh where perhaps sexual intimacy isn't in the foreground right that we kind of support you know the great thing about working with a team like Ori is that we're such a multidisciplinary team that um you know we might go through periods where somebody is in a uh, kind of family therapy um 
you know, that's part of their treatment program, in which case we might be encouraging couples to explore that together with a therapist. Um, we might do work kind of individually as well. So, yeah, I, I feel like I'm not quite sure if I articulated a succinct response, mm -hmm. Hannah, but it feels like such a broad topic. Yeah. Um, but I think kind of involving the partner feels really important um, and just reassuring everyone that we can still find ways to make contact um, and, and create intimacy. It might be that sexual intimacy isn't a priority. And if, if you're someone who's on the opposite end of the spectrum and engaging in kind of promiscuous sexual activity, then, then we need to think about, um, you know, what's the impulse underneath that? What am I, what, what is driving this behavior? What's underneath it? Um, and, you know, again, in terms of treatment, we think about, okay, what does the care team need to look like? What does the support team need to look like to explore that safely? Yeah. And I'm really glad that you, you know, focused on the sort of way that a partner might feel, because I think often we kind of forget about not just partners, but kind of maybe family in general and the way that they, they're feeling, watching their loved one really struggle and distance themselves. Um, and so I think it's really important that we do keep that in mind and kind of just say to people like, it isn't you. Um, and yeah. you're also not alone in this to know that other people are experiencing the same thing um, and I, I loved how beautifully you put about um, sort of that like biological drive of you know when you have no energy reproducing is not the thing that you're probably focusing on because I've always I've never really thought about it in that concept but I've always yeah. said sort of when you have very little energy and we've said this so many times on the podcast, you don't have the energy to be nice. And a lot of people are sort of like, you know, not themselves because they don't have the energy. So I would have put it like, well, I've not got the energy to have sex because I've not got the energy to anything. So yes, thank you for putting that so beautifully. <laughs> well, I think that's so true, Hannah, isn't it? Right. You know, there isn't the energy for creative expression. Mm. There is an energy necessary for sexual expression. Yeah. There isn't, energy for you know the the kind of um demands that are you know real if we're in any kind of relationship relationships yeah. are demanding mm -hmm. so I think that's another really beautiful way of describing it and you know if we think about really what the body is trying to do is um look after all of its tiny uh, reserves yeah. so you know essentially you know it has to kind of gather right back to the absolute kind of basics of needing to function. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of sort of, you know, sex and relationships, um, I know you put a poll out uh, to your followers to ask some questions. And one that I really liked that you asked was, advice for people who kind of feel a bit behind um you know if you've had an eating disorder for quite a while um you might be in your late 20s and sort of the eating disorder has been the focus in your life and maybe you haven't had the confidence to go out and be in a relationship or meet somebody so I think the the kind of question was asking if you had advice for somebody that is still a virgin because they've had an eating sort of for quite a long time, maybe in their late twenties. I think there's a lot of pressure in society, regardless of whether you have an eating disorder or not, to sort of lose your virginity by a certain age. Um, and I think that 
as time goes on, people can then reduce in confidence even more um, because it's kind of that big thing of, you know, it's such a big experience to lose your virginity. But then as time goes on, I think people do start to worry even more. Yeah, it was such a brilliant question to come through and really brave of the person that asked. And I have heard similar questions also um, before. My, it feels like there's a number of things um, I could say, but I guess one of the things is that often we can source our value by being in relationship (laughs) right we only need to look on Instagram to find like the hashtag couple goals or relationship goals or you know there's something about that that I think can be um, really triggering and uh, really um, can really support this idea of Uh, somebody feeling left behind Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I would say in terms of our first sexual experience is that it's a threshold it's an initiation we cross something that once we've experienced that it can't be undone Mm -hmm. and one of the things I would encourage someone to think about is um, you know to think about what what would I need to feel ready for that? How would I need to feel in myself, in my own body? Um, what would the aftercare of that need to look like? What would the during care need to look like? What would the before care need to look like? Um, what are some of my kind of fears or concerns about that experience? some of that might be really practical things, right? That we can speak to a GP about, that we can speak to a nursing team about. Some of it might be more kind of emotional, uh, psychological concerns or fear. So one thing I would say is that if you are in a position where that hasn't yet happened, then actually you're in a position where you can think about it really consciously in terms of what would this look like? Um, what would I, um, what, how would I want to feel in myself, in my system? Um, what would I require from my partner, mm-hmm. right? In order for that to feel safe, in order for that to feel kind of tolerable. So I guess I would say it's perhaps an opportunity actually to pause, right? And in terms of that kind of feeling of being behind, I mean, it's so, (laughs) I heard someone say at the start of the pandemic that the anxiety of COVID is more catchable than COVID itself. (laughs) I don't know if we can measure that in any way, but there was kind (laughs) of something about that that really spoke to me, right? The anxiety, particularly at the beginning, was like wildfire. And... I think the same happens in terms of this comparison piece is that it kind of spreads through us so quickly. And I would encourage as much as possible to reorientate yourself to current time and space. 
Mm. Your divine path is only being uh, kind of, you know, um, paced through by you, experienced by you. There is no right kind of age, stage, place. There's only the right stage, age, place for you. And my sense is that if that hasn't happened for you yet, and it's something that you want, then use this time just to get really clear about what it needs to look like. Um, And in the meantime, um, you know, think about what are some of the ways that I can just activate my own creative expression or find pleasure in other ways because they have the same resonance, Mm -hmm. right, as kind of sexual energy too. So you can think about this in terms of like life force, like what lights me up, what um, brings me joy in other areas of my life. Yeah, I think um, like the the kind of thought that came up for me there, and I can't remember what you said. I think it was kind of at the start of when you started talking about this. I think it was the whole Instagram thing in like couple goals. I think one thing that I would be wary of is that sort of if somebody's still in the depth of an eating disorder their identity is that eating disorder I think it could very easily become their relationship is then their their identity and rather than sort of like you've talked about understanding what you want deep down and what provides you pleasure it's sort of the doing things for the onlooker and for somebody to sort of see what you're doing and to impress them which I think that kind of it all ties in so well with I want people to sort of like I've got my eating sort of because I want people to think this of me then it becomes you know and I've got this partner and equally you know with the worry of being at a certain age and having not lost your virginity like you've said the the time will come when the time's right for you and it almost feels sometimes that the pressure just is external from other people and so all three of them it's kind of like a potential of doing something so that uh, so that other people see you in a certain way that you want to be reflected but you're not actually thinking about what gives you pleasure absolutely and again it's such an example of how we outsource isn't Mm -hmm. it you know we will do anything (laughs) and I mean this across the board we will kind of reach for the quickest easiest um you know kind of source to either inform our identity or to soothe you know the biggest misconception is that a relationship is kind of two halves (laughs) that come together to create a whole Mm -hmm. that's not true you know a a relationship is two whole people Mm -hmm. and together they create a third container the relationship is the third container of two whole people, two whole beings with their own needs, with their own desires, with their own um, kind of challenges, their areas of limitation and compromise. So, yeah, I think often in terms of kind of eating disorder, um, you know, the recovery process, I'm thinking about and supporting people to acknowledge or consider where am I outsourcing myself? Where am I outsourcing my value? Is it in my body looking or being a certain way or shape or size? Is it that I'm outsourcing it to my partner? Is it that I'm outsourcing myself to the eating disorder because it's the only thing I believe that I'm doing well, right? And then what we kind of want to think about is how can I self-source? 
how can I start to um, yeah as you say really consider like what brings me joy what brings me pleasure um, how do I experience and cultivate that within my own body first um, and then we can think about how we can manage that within a relational dynamic and I'm, I'm just, I'm conscious of time, but I just want to quickly mm-hmm. ask you for your advice because I've got two questions that I always ask at the end and I want to fit those in as well. Great. Um, but your advice you just said about, you know, finding your pleasure and your joy. If somebody has been, you know, within their eating disorder for a very long, even if it's not been a long time, but it, they currently feel like that's the only thing that gives them purpose. How would you suggest to even begin to try and find things that you know they actually find pleasure from and actually do find joyful that isn't something that's self-destructive yeah it's such a good question I think we need to circle back to that idea of the window of tolerance right for one person um they might be able to find a moment of presence of joy of pleasure by making a cup of tea and sitting with that cup of tea and just having their hands around a hot mug in a calm, safe place. And they can experience that and it feels uh, pleasurable for them. For someone else, it might be that they get activated by their senses, Mm. that smelling an essential oil or lighting a candle is a way in which, again, they can experience kind of sensual sensuality or kind of sensual pleasure. Um, It could be um, self-massage, right? Just like acknowledging, oh, my shoulder is really kind of uncomfortable. And can I just get a really lovely oil and just give my shoulder a rub for a moment, right? It might be sitting in the sun and just feeling allowing yourself to feel the warmth on your skin so you know I think we need to kind of remember how broad and rich our definitions of kind of pleasure and intimacy Mm -hmm. can be Um, if even that word feels a bit triggering or feels kind of difficult to sit with I would encourage people just to sit with the question um, what gives me life force So what gives me energy? When do I feel in that kind of calm, regulated nervous system state? Um, When do I feel most alive, right? Most of us can probably find an answer to that. Someone answered that question to me once by saying, just opening the window and letting some fresh air come in. And I thought, wow, that was somebody that was really, really deeply, deeply in the midst of her eating disorder and struggling to get hold of anything that could bring her joy. And she found that. And I thought, wow, how amazing. She got hold of something, right? That moment of her kind of opening the window, feeling that kind of fresh air, as she described it, that kind of sense of like life, like she could take an inhale um, and then breathe that out. Probably in that moment, her body kind of settled for a moment. Mm Um, it might not be a moment she kind of perceived as pleasurable, but it was a moment perhaps of calm, um, more joyful than other moments in the day. So we can kind of dial it back, but I would say find something within your tolerance. Mm -hmm. Um, And if the word feels uncomfortable, notice that 
and then think okay what brings me joy or what adds to my life force my energy yeah I'm so glad you used that example because I think often when we talk about pleasure or joy we we tend to like push ourselves into really extreme things and it has to be something really big and extravagant that makes us feel good but like you said literally just getting some fresh air might be the answer um so thank you and I honestly could talk to you for hours um but I'm aware that we've been talking for an hour so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap things up but it has been so lovely to talk to you so you too Hannah (laughs) the the last two questions I have I'm gonna twist the first one slightly just for this conversation um but if if someone is listening and they're a loved one maybe a partner family member of somebody that is struggling with an eating disorder what would be your top tip or your best advice for them to get support? So not the person with the eating disorder, but the one kind of supporting somebody. Got it. So it makes me think about who's helping the helper, Mm -hmm. right? What I would encourage is to, um, I do this with eating disorder clients too, but I think it's really relevant in the context of the carer. Mm -hmm or a family member is on a A4 piece of paper is to basically you're going to create a mind map. So you write your name in the middle, draw a circle or a shape around your name, and then start drawing um, kind of stems off of your name to list any one or any place or any activity that you feel supports you um, to be in that kind of regulated nervous system state, Mm -hmm. right? It might be other family members. It might be that you have a therapist. It might be that you take an art class on a Tuesday evening. It might be walking your dog. It might be um, that old friend who you trust 100% And you know that having a 30 minute call makes you feel more settled and soothed. Mm. So basically build your map, right? Build your own support team. When you can see that on paper, um, A, it can show you where some of the gaps are. Mm -hmm. So you might notice, oh, I've got friends or family I can speak to, but I don't have any um, kind of professional services that I'm in contact with or the other way around. Um, A, it can highlight the gaps. Um, And then we can strategically think about, okay, how do we start filling it out? But also it can just be something I often say, like pin it somewhere where you can see it so that when things are really struck, when you're finding things really difficult or you're struggling, that you can look at your support mind map and remember that you're not alone. And often just looking at it, you will be able to kind of feel into your body mind system and think, okay, what I really need is a cup of tea with my neighbor. Yeah. Or you might think, actually, what I really need is a massage. Or you might think, actually, what I really need is to speak to a professional that can hold my experience alongside this. Again, to meet the moment, right? Um, so that would be my yeah. piece of advice. I think that is like completely wonderful. And I think I might do that myself. Um, I think it's such a good idea. And especially to reflect on maybe when you're having a difficult day and that when I think a lot of the time when we're having a difficult day, we sort of forget everything that's positive. And I know like 
just speaking anecdotally the other day I felt a bit down and I just not purposefully but I started looking through the pictures on my phone and I started to think there are so many people in this world that I love and they love me and it just it really brought me back into kind of not feeling like I was alone anymore so I think that is a brilliant idea um and then the other question that I had for you was obviously as having conversations like this it's absolutely fantastic and provides so much insight to people but often the people that will be listening to the podcast are people that are already interesting interested in raising awareness of eating disorders so do you have any ideas of what the next step could be in terms of raising awareness maybe in the general community it's such a good question, Hannah. Um, I think we all have a responsibility to, to share information in ways that feel accessible to us, right? I did a workshop once in Indonesia in a school with young girls and they were about uh, 11, I think. And <laughs> one of them I asked if they had any questions and one of them said are you an influencer and the first thing I did was exactly as you've done Hannah which is laugh <laughs> like I laughed and then I realized that she was being serious and I I kind of I retracted my laugh and kind of had a moment where I orientated myself and I said yes <laughs> yes I am <laughs> influencer and not because I have a big following absolutely not um, but I am an influencer because I exist mm -hmm. and how I show up impacts other people yeah right and I was so grateful for the question because in my laughter I almost just said no right mm -hmm. that was my immediate response yeah. was like no I'm not an influencer but she made me pause and then consider my answer and so I guess I'm thinking about um, we all have a sphere of influence and I would think about how can I use my sphere of influence to uh, share either my kind of own experience or the understanding that I have gained either as a carer or um, through somebody that works within uh, eating disorder services to spread information further and wider, especially within pools where the information is not so easily accessible. Some people might have that through a blog. Some people might start with their own family constellation and think about um, how can I uh, kind of change perhaps some of the stigma within my own family or my, even my own relationship or circle of friends. So I think, um, and, and I, if I think about myself, there's always more growth and work to be done. I think I can get comfortable speaking within my kind of pockets, like mm -hmm. my sphere. So I say that in the recognition of, you know, I have more work and learning to do always on this. But I think the recognition of what's my sphere of influence, where can I start to stretch my own tolerance to raise conversation, to ask questions, to get curious and um you know and find ways in which um, information can be accessed as easily as possible yeah absolutely well thank you so much Pippa it's been absolutely lovely to speak with you today so thank you for sharing I feel like there's so much information to take away from this we've touched on so much so thank you very very much 
Thank you, Hannah. I feel the same. I feel that we could talk for hours and I really (laughs) have learned so much from kind of listening to you and your own thoughts and experience too. So thank you for sharing them with me. Thank you. I thought that conversation with Pippa was incredibly insightful and I enjoyed exploring areas that normally we don't talk about and I think are seen as a little bit of a taboo topic but are so important, not just for the person with the eating disorder but for the person supporting them alongside their recovery to know that it isn't them and if they do become a bit more reserved or a little less themselves, it's kind of part of the process and to hold on because they will come back. Next week, we'll be joined by Joss Walden, who is a mental health campaigner and has her own experience of anorexia. With Joss, we discuss weight recovery, pushing through the hardest days. So I got my parents to bring up my kind of like art box, my scrapbooking box, and I just made these vision books. And it had things in it like I would write things about a lot of traveling things that I love to travel, but um, <laughs> even stuff about wanting to have children. And I used to write lots of little poems. They weren't very good poems, a bit crappy, but anything that would kind of just get me in touch with something bigger than myself. Something actually that you can do all those things with an eating disorder, but it's not going to be the same experience. And I don't want to settle for the quasi recovery experience of that. I want to have the full experience of being, you know, just going traveling and then just going to uni. That's what I want. So I think making those vision books and having the journals and the vision face maps just kept me my eyes up. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!